Hey, good evening, Living Truth. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. And if you're with us, um, well, last week it was a, a different service. It was a communion sort of pre-Easter service. If you're with us two weeks ago, you'll know that Pastor um, taught in Hebrews chapter 6. So Pastor Michael was in Hebrews 6. And so you might be thinking, he was in Hebrews 6, and we, I, did I miss something? Why are we in Hebrews 8? Um, we're in Hebrews 8 because Hebrews 7, we went over when I did Hebrews chapter 5. So Hebrews 5 and 7 were paired together when they talked about the priest, uh, the high priest Melchizedek, and we read, read through actually all of chapter 7 to explain and help um, make sense of chapter 5. And so we're actually going to do a little bit of a flashback to 7 here and there, but uh, as you'll see from the first verse of chapter 8, even if you didn't read 7, it literally gives like the Cliff Notes version. It's like, hey, the main point of everything so far is this. And that, it's actually not just the main point for chapter 7, it's the main point for the last seven chapters. So if you are just joining us for the first time and you're like, man, I haven't been a part of the Hebrew study, what's going on? You have jumped in at the right place, okay? So let's pray. Father God, we, we come here tonight to hear from you. You are faithful, you are good, you are altogether lovely, and you are our perfect Father in heaven. And so I'm standing on the promise of your word that says, Lord, if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. And so by faith, we come near to you tonight. We want to hear from you. We want your word to come alive. We want your spirit to lead us into all truth. We don't want opinions of man or anything else. So touch my lips that just your truth would come out. But Lord, be glorified in our midst tonight. And we just proclaim as one that we love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're talking about Hebrews chapter 8, which is a more excellent ministry. I'm reading out of the New American Standard Version. If you didn't bring your Bible, um, I will have almost everything that I'm going to be talking about on the screen behind me. I'm going to move rather quickly, so it's not one of those things where I'm going to say, okay, turn with me too. I'm just going to say, hey, in John chapter 5, it says this, and I'll have it up behind me, and you have to follow along that way. It'll just take way too long if we all flip and flip and flip, okay? So in Hebrews chapter 8... Um, we pick it up in verse 1. I'm going to read all 13 verses, and then we'll go back through and go line by line. Verse 1 says, again, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat, this is Jesus, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve just a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things and this is quoting in Exodus, according to the pattern which is shown to you on the mountain. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I didn't care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, hey, know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear." 
lot packed in there. We're going to break it down, hopefully make it quite simple and understandable. That's my goal and my aim today. Lord willing, we'll do that. In verse 1, it says, the main point, what's been said is this. Again, a cliff note. If you missed everything, we have a high priest in Jesus, a high priest of the order of Melchizedek, a high priest who is now going to be expounded upon his duties as this high priest, but he's taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And, you know, I come from, I'm a coach. Some of you might not know that, but I coached soccer for almost 23 years. And it's always been my opinion that when I'm coaching, if there's a player sitting they're doing it wrong. It's supposed to be active. You're supposed to be up doing something, run around, jump, dive, head, slide, something. Do anything other than sit. Because when I think you're sitting, sometimes I just, in my mind, I'm like, they're not doing anything. Couldn't be further from the truth in this case. Jesus Christ is sitting here, but what is he doing while he's sitting? So I wanted to take a quick look at that. He's seated. He's not doing nothing. He's doing something. What's he doing right now? The very first thing you should understand that he's doing is that he is interceding for us. We get that if you just flip back, just, um, what does interceding mean first? Just so you know, interceding, it's a, it's a fancy big word. It just means acting or intervening on behalf of another. So if somebody needs help, I might intervene to give that person help. In Hebrews 7.25, again, a quick flashback just to the previous chapter, it describes, therefore, Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So that's great. It declares Jesus is making intercession. What does that mean? I think you get a better glimpse when you turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 describes Jesus as, in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. This next verse gives the context for intercession, so pay attention. Verse 35 says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famineness, Famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Understand this. Intercession is this. God's declaring that tribulation, peril, the sword, persecution are coming for us. Jesus is there to say, no, no, no. I'm going to intercede and take care of that for you. Jesus is the one, uh, I always think of the, the, the sheep. Jesus is the one when we as sheep, because you know, we're in the fold of God, there's a hundred of us, right? And then all of a sudden, persecution arises, and we're like, I don't know if this is still for me. I'm not sure if I want to stick here. It's pretty tough to follow after Jesus. I, I don't know. I'm tending to just kind of... Jesus intercedes and says, no, no, no. And he pulls that one, and he brings it back to the 99 and says, no. That's the perfect picture of intercession. Do you see it? So he's seated, but he's interceding for us. Next, you should know this. He's also advocating for us. What does advocating mean? Advocating is just defending or pleading the cause of another. Sometimes you think of it as lawyering, advocating, right? You don't want to be the one who comes to the, the courtroom and doesn't have someone to plead your case for you because you don't understand the laws. You don't understand the system. What's going on? The judge is going to be like, yeah, no, you're... That's it, you're guilty. But in 1 John 2, 1, it says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So here, Jesus is our defense attorney. He's the one that when the accuser, the devil, comes and says, hey, this guy's guilty. Jesus, I, Father, I, I saw him. I know, I know what this guy did. I've got videotape. I, I was there. I saw it. That guy's a low-down, dirty, rotten scoundrel, and he's calling himself a Christian. I, he is not. I, that guy is just the scum of the earth. And Jesus is to stay there to say, hey, you know what? <laughs> hey, Dad, I paid for the penalty of that sin. And the next one, and the next one. Jesus is there to say, you know what? <laughs> Dad, he's with me. He's there to say, he's mine. I covered that in my blood. Those sins that he's absolutely guilty of were what I died for on the cross. Yeah, he's with me, dad. And you know what the father says? That's all I needed to hear. You're good. Come on in. And so Jesus is our advocate standing there as we're getting accused. That one's on me. That one's on me. He, she, there with me. And I love this, that Jesus is preparing 
Know that in um, John 14, 1, 3, talks about the place he's preparing for us. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, sometimes translated mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. As we put our faith in Christ alone to be saved, we are guaranteed an eternal dwelling place in heaven. Jesus himself is the one who not only secured the place, he died on the cross for our sins, he also says, now I'm gonna go and prepare the place for you. So we have Jesus doing those three main functions again. He's the one who's gonna be um, interceding, advocating, and preparing for us. But I also had this thought, like, okay, so I always think of heaven as like the eternal state, like things are just, like, that's how it is in heaven. And so then I just had this picture, like, am I going to get there? And he's just like seated, like he's going to be like sitting down. Because like in most of my heavenly thoughts and daydreams, if you will, I don't typically picture Jesus sitting down. And so I, I thought, is he just forever seated? And I looked into it and I, I, the answer quick is absolutely not. Um, I'm going to read this, the whole thing. It's Exodus, it's Acts, excuse me, chapter 7. The context here is that Stephen, Stephen is one of the early followers of Christ, likely as Pentecost uh, happened. He's one of the, the thousands there that got saved and the Holy Spirit came upon him and he, he accepted the Lord as his Christ, as Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He then began to serve. As he began to serve, he grew and he was doing miracles and performing feats and doing great things and bringing more people to know Jesus. Well, the scribes, the Pharisees, the people in the synagogue, they didn't like that. They didn't like the attention being drawn from the synagogue to this Jesus. And so they took Stephen. And he's in fact going to be, as you'll see, one of the very first martyrs. But as he's going through, he's actually explaining the gospel to them from like creation all the way to Jesus through the Old Testament. And, he's, and he just calls out these Pharisees and Sadducees and he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always rest, resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. And Stephen's about to get real. He's just like pointing right at him. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you didn't even keep it. Now when they heard this, whoo, they were cut to the quick. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, standing. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then, he, then, falling on his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Jesus was there. He's actually standing to wrap his arms to meet Stephen the moment he passed from this life into eternity and his eternal life. And I, I flash back here to mention, you know, we talked about Jesus interceding. And some of you might be thinking, you know, you talk about this interceding Jesus. And some of you might have an experience like Saul where you say, well, where was Jesus then? Where was Jesus interceding for somebody like Stephen when he's getting stoned to death? You ever wonder where the Lord was in your life? Lord, where were you when? And I can tell you this. Sometimes we don't see the verse 58 in our lives. Sometimes you don't see that they were driven him out of the city and they began stoning him. The witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul of Tarsus. Saul who was on a road to Damascus to continue the execution and murder of Christians. The Saul of Tarsus who got knocked off the horse. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord said. And right then, Lord, Lord, Saul came to absolute repentance, gave his life to Christ, and began to just be used by the Holy Spirit to pen a good majority of the New Testament. So understand this, we talk about interceding God. God will work all things together for good to those who love him. 
But that good for you may be taking you home and taking out a position, taking out a situation, and understand that good may be, hey, understand I'm going to use you to impact this young man, Saul, that I might use him as well to bring me glory, to further my kingdom. Do you see it? So, you know, it's natural, I think, in just who we are to question where was God when. But understand just right here, man, we see some pretty cool verses like 58 where there's some things that God's just working behind the scenes that we may never know this side of heaven. So we see there, he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, and he is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So we, we look back at the, just the, the ordination, what they were doing as high priests. It was their job to go in, make sacrifices in the temple, slay the bulls, the goats, the oxen, the birds, all those different things uh, to have a blood sacrifice for the removal of sins. And so it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. And we'll get into what Jesus offers in a little bit. Now, if, if, if Jesus were on earth, he wouldn't even be a priest at all. Well, that's interesting. Why wouldn't he be a priest? Since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Understand he wouldn't be a priest at all because he's not gonna have sacrifices to daily offer. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But I wanna look at right here, verses two, three, and four lay out a couple of what we call symbols. Some of these symbols are quite simple. It talks about the law, talks about a priest, talks about the temple, and talks about sacrifices. And sometimes I use the word temple and tabernacle interchangeably because they pretty much are. Tabernacle was that temporary tent that they took as they came out of Egypt through the wilderness before they came to the, the promised land. That was the tabernacle. It was a tent. And then they get to the promised land and Solomon builds the temple. Very similar in fashion and shape and function, but it's the permanent structure with the rocks that was, becomes the temple. So understand I use temple and tabernacle the same. Uh, but, and the sacrifices. We talked about the blood of bulls and goats being used there. So those things, understand, that are part of this old covenant system were merely types and foreshadows of things to come. And we say old covenant. That's a word that's new, and we're going to use that. We're going to get into that word in a little bit. Understand the word covenant simply means promise. So if you replace covenant, which is a very church word, with just a regular everyday word, promise. I made a covenant with my wife to love her all the days of my life. I made a promise to my wife to love her all the days of my life. Does that make sense? God is a covenant-making or a promise-making, promise-keeping God. By nature, that's who he is. He makes promises and he keeps them. That is who our Father in heaven is. And so we have a history of covenants. And I'm not here to talk about the exhaustive uh, theological books of covenant theology or dispensationalism. We're not going to talk about that. Understand there, and whether there's four covenants or five or seven or eight, and we're not going to get into that tonight, okay? Understand that there are a couple major covenants. As I say them very quickly, they should ring some bells for you, and if not, something new. But we start back in the Old Testament. You have the, what's called the Adamic covenant. That is, God made a promise to Adam that one day from the seed of a woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. That is, hey, God said, you know what? Your sin in listening to the serpent separated us. I have to remove you from the garden. You're out of my presence now. You have now sinned. A perfect and holy God can't have fellowship with a sinful man. But God said to Adam, I promise that one day the Messiah, the Savior, won't be an angel, won't be some outside thing. It'll come from a woman who will save you and restore and repair the relationship. Yes, the Adamic covenant. Then you come into time, you have like the Noahic covenant, which is to the man Noah. Noah, the times of Noah, it said basically everybody was evil all the time, which is a lot of people a lot of the time. Everybody all the time being evil. Well, as the floods came, wiped out the population of the earth, except for Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three wives, God said to Noah, I promise that I will not flood the earth again. My sign of that promise, whenever you see the rain, I want to put a pride of rainbow. You'll see that. You'll know it's not going to be flooding the earth again. Because you got to think about that for a second. The rain came down and it like never stopped. And then everybody died. And so the next time it rains, you got to be thinking Noah's like, oh no. Like, is this going all over again? And God's like, no, I give you my promise and I give you a sign so you can just chill when it rains. It's a good thing, not a bad thing anymore. Okay? No way at covenant. Then you go to time, you have the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a covenant to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a nation. And I'm going to make it that one day from your seed will come one who will be a blessing to all the nations. 
right? Simple Abrahamic covenant. We're not here to get into that tonight, but God made a covenant, a promise with Abraham that those things would happen. Then you have in time, he makes a, what we call a Davidic covenant. And I'm skipping one, which if you know in order, the Mosaic covenant, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But he makes the covenant to David and says, David, um, I promise you, David, that from your line will be the king who sits in the throne forever. David, you're a king. I'll make it's going to be Solomon and after him, after him, after him. But one day, the king from your line will sit on the throne forever. We call that the Davidic covenant. So you see God, a promise-making, promise-keeping God, right? And you'll understand how most of those things are fulfilled. All those things are fulfilled in Jesus. But here's a different thing you should understand. The covenant that God's referring to here talks about the one where I took you up to, to the mountain. He's talking about this covenant here. It's the Mosaic covenant, the one that he made with Moses on Mount Sinai, the one that he made with Moses after he took them out of Egypt and through the wilderness, he made a promise to Moses. This promise to Moses was actually different and unique compared to all the other covenants that he made. And so understand that we're going to really dig into this Mosaic covenant and really look at how we, again, we talked about a a more excellent ministry and a better covenant. We'll be comparing it to the new covenant in just a little bit. But understand that when we talk about symbols, these symbols were shadows. We sometimes call it they're foreshadowing. You'll sometimes use the word they were patterns or copies or that they were types of things in the Old Testament. And so a shadow has no substance in and of itself. It's something that just fades away. But it is a representation. I hear on the stage, we have a shadow. It represents the real thing, but it's just not the real thing. And so Hebrews is written to assure all of those who are coming from the system. They came from law, temple, priest, sacrifice, and those were good things. Hebrews is here to show them, hey, those things were just pointing to the better thing in Jesus Christ. And so understand this. In verse 5, it even expands a little bit more on this copy idea. It says, those earthly high priests serve a copy. And he just calls it a copy and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was warned by God, he was about to erect the tabernacle. See, he says, you make all things according to the pattern which is shown you on the mountain. Understand, Moses on the mountain had a glimpse into heaven. Moses didn't look at something like a piece of paper and a blueprint. Sometimes you wonder, well, how did Moses get these instructions for length and width and what is the Holy of Holies and what do these different vessels look like? Did he get it on paper? No. Moses had a glimpse into what that looks like, the throne room of heaven. That's why when he came off the mountain, he had this glow on his face and it freaked everybody out. They're like, Moses, what did you look at up there? Because now like, the cells in your DNA are illuminating and it's freaking everybody out because no human should glow like that. Can you cover up your face? Because it's just kind of scary. And so he had to walk around the veil for a while till the glow wore off but it's because he saw the real thing in heaven. And then he was told, make a copy of that. Using earthly materials and earthly things, go ahead and use it here on earth. But understand that it's going to be pointing to the real thing. Types and foreshadows, just to drive it home. Jesus himself was actually the best at explaining types and foreshadows and copies and things. He talked about bread. Bread is one of the most simple. If you're like, I don't quite get how Old Testament things point to New Testament things. I don't get how they were foreshadows. What does that look like? Let Jesus explain it himself in John chapter 6, verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign? So he's like, hey, you say you're something special. You must have some sort of a sign for us. It's almost like a dance for me monkey sort of a thing. Like, hey, entertain me, do something for me. That we may see and believe you, what work do you perform Our fathers, they say, ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You want a sign like the the bread that came down from heaven? That was just a copy. That was just a type and a shadow of the true bread to come. You want something to come down from heaven that will give you life? Jesus is like, 
I am the bread. Do you understand copies, foreshadows, types, and those sort of things? So understand this, the copy verse, the real thing, the tabernacle, which is, again, verses like two through five, we'll look at tabernacle, a tent pitched by man where the Lord's glory temporarily dwells is a temporary thing. It's not there now. It was here for a while. Now it's not. The real thing is heaven, made by the Lord where God will eternally forever dwell. You had copy and shout gifts and sacrifices. Know that they had to daily offer gifts and, and bulls and goats and sacrifices. As the sins continued, they had to daily, daily, daily uh, slaughter those things. The gifts and sacrifice, understand this. Jesus said, Jesus, I'm the gift. I'm the sacrifice. God gave his only son, Jesus, as the perfect lamb of God to be the one-time sacrifice for all. And that's the main message, just so you know, going forward in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the one-time sacrifice for all. And after that, he made it really clear in his own words. It's finished. There's no need for the sacrificial system to keep on going. I did it. It covered everybody for all time. It's done. Understand the copy, even the high priest. You know, they were from the tribe of Levi. We discussed this in the last couple chapters. The role was very temporary. In fact, just, you know, you were a high priest until you died. You were a high priest you died, your son's the high priest, he dies, and so on and so forth for generation after generation after generation. Jesus is the perfect high priest. From the order of Melchizedek, as we read, it has no beginning, no end. He is the high priest forever. Jesus is our high priest. He made the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice, and it's finished. And so the copies, man, those never really compare to the real deal. And we're here tonight to talk about the real thing. And so we go on in verse six. But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now I titled this a more excellent ministry. It wasn't until like a week later when I realized like that word excellent always has one big flashback for me. I always think of like, Excellent. You know what I mean? Uh, those are my friends, Bill and Ted. If you don't know them, that's okay. Like, so a more excellent ministry, Jesus says, is a, is a, is, and it uses a word again. We should just explore that word. He says he's a mediator of a better covenant. Mediator is not a word I use every day. So we take a moment to say a mediator is a middle person that aims to reconcile two parties. If you've got party A and party B and they're not getting along and they're fighting, you might need party C to come in and say, hold on a second, hold on, hold on. What are you saying? What are you saying? Okay, I think we can meet here. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? I'm gonna mediate and make these two get along. Yes, that's the role of a mediator. Jesus is that bridge that connects sinful man to the holy God. He is the mediator. And he is the mediator of a better covenant. Understand this, the Bible says in Romans chapter five, verse eight, that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How did he bridge the gap? How did he bridge? How did he repair like that was broken, that which was broken from Adam? How did he, that, that rift of sin that separated God from man? He stood in the gap and he said, it's on me. I am the bridge. It's the only way to get man and God back in relationship together, to mediate between them. I'll do it, Jesus said. And I love this. It's a better covenant and better promises. And we're gonna look at that. So right here, it just says better, better, better. I like this. But understand this. It wasn't saying that the old covenant was trash. This new covenant is just more excellent. And I like that it gives some reverence to the old covenant. It's saying the old covenant was, in fact, excellent. It was excellent. It did its job perfectly. The old covenant, the law, the system under Moses was there to make you understand that you are a sinner. Very, God did so with 10 simple commandments. I could have maybe just done with one of them. I still would have been found guilty as a sinner. God's like, let me give you 10 simple things. 613 in total, but just these 10. Try these on for size. And in those 10 simple things, mission accomplished in every single life ever. 
I break those. I have sin in my life. That covenant was great at pointing out sin. So it's not like, oh, this better covenant, it's so much better that that last one was really down here and this new one's up here. No, no, it was excellent. This is just better. And we're gonna dig into that. What does that look like? So again, the law, I'm gonna sort of have a column here, talk about what the Mosaic covenant was. And we're gonna go very quickly to some of these verses, but you have to understand what the covenant was to understand how the new covenant or the new promise is better. So we dig into a little bit to this Mosaic covenant. It was written on stones. Uh, Exodus 24, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there. And I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. We understand that. We've seen um, Charlton Heston come out with those tablets, right? That's how it looks, just like that. So um, they're written on stones. Understand this is majorly important. The promises were dependent upon obedience. What does that mean? Well, Exodus 19 is, is the promise. It says this. This is the, 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 the gist of the entirety of the Mosaic Covenant. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, this is the promise. This is, this is the Mosaic Covenant. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Do you see it? If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you're my own possession. If then, conditions. You have to do this in order to receive this. Which, by the way, is the reason why it's being replaced. The Adamic covenant, unconditional. Abrahamic covenant, God didn't say, Abraham, if you do the following, then completely unconditional. There's an animal that was sacrificed was split in two, and the way it worked back then, if both parties walked through that, that split animal, uh, when they walked through together, it symbolized that, that both the parties were in agreement, that both parties said, I'm going to keep this part, you're going to keep this part, we're walking through the, 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 the sacrifice together. And that was how they were bonded in that covenant, right? And it, it also symbolized, like, if one of us doesn't keep our end, the other one's, that person's going to die. And so realize that God, realizing man, the idea of bringing the Messiah into the world line of Abraham is way too important to put on the condition of Abraham being like responsible for anything or his people that I have to leave him here. A deep sleep fell upon Abram. And so he was there and God passed through that sacrifice himself signifying it's unconditional. I alone am going through here. I alone am making the promise that these promises are, are gonna come to pass. All the rest of those covenants, unconditional. The promise to David, David, if you're a really good king and you make good judgments, then I will. No, 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 no. God just tells David, from your line, it's gonna come a king who sits on the throne forever, just the way it was. So this covenant has the unique property in that it alone is the, is the sorry, conditional covenant. And that's why this new covenant can be so much better. And we'll look at that in a little bit. So promises, and the promises of the covenant really were not as great because they were temporal things, the things for this life. There were things like, hey, I'm going to give you a full length of days. I'm going to increase your numbers, make you a large nation. I'm going to give you a blessing and rainfall at the harvest. I'm going to give you abundance, prosperity. Those kind of things were the promises of, primarily the promises of the old covenant. Deuteronomy 6.1 says, now this is the commandment. The statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your sons and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and promises which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days, this is the promise, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. Why should I do it? What's the promise? What's the benefit? That it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord your God, your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. All these temporal blessings. I'll grow your numbers. You have length of days. I'm gonna give you a land. All those things had to do primarily the, the blessings here on earth. And know this, the Mosaic covenant was a law that in itself did not have the power to save. The law was just there, we talked about, to show us that we are sinners. Second Corinthians 3 looks back on it, reflects and says, 
And this is interesting because this is, um, we'll get into it. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. He's talking about the letters, he's talking about the letters of the law. And how do we know that? Because he goes into more detail. But if the ministry of death, again, this is the old covenant, the old covenant is the letter that kills and a ministry of death. If the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, makes it very clear, talk about the law, came with glory. Again, it was good. It came with glory. The glory shone off the face of Moses even. It was, it was, it was a glorious covenant. So that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, was, was the glory of his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory. He's simply comparing the two. He's saying, look, the covenant of the stones, the covenant of the law, it was written down. It, like that, it was good. But if that thing brought death, it's a letter that kills, a ministry of death. When the spirit brings life, how much more glorious will this in fact be? The answer is very glorious. Better covenant, better ministry. Therefore, the law, the Old Testament covenant, has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. This, the role of this covenant was just to point to the need for a savior and that savior in Jesus Christ. Amen? That was its role. It did it great, but it couldn't save. This covenant just showed you that you in fact needed a savior. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under that tutor We've got Jesus. And so again, that, that covenant, last point here, was limited to Israel. That covenant was an Old Testament covenant to the nation and the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 7 says this, you, you Israel, that is you from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's you I chose the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number any of the peoples. If you're in fact the fewest of all peoples, like you are a really tiny nation, yet I chose you. And the covenant I'm making is to you. It's gonna be in vast, vast contrast to what we talk about as the new covenant. And so look at that. The new covenant is simply this. The new promise is the promise of Jesus. That is, Jesus is the new covenant is the fulfillment of all the other covenants that we talked about. The new covenant is the fulfillment of the Adamic covenant, the fulfillment of the Noahic covenant and, and the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. The fulfillment is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we look at that now. How is this new covenant in Jesus so much better? First of all, understand this. Second Corinthians chapter three says this. Their minds were hardened, for until this very day, and this is the idea of transitioning from one covenant to the other, until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. The same like, I don't see it. I don't get it. How does this point? What, what are we doing here in the Old Testament all these years later in the old covenant? Because it's removed in Christ. What it's saying is there, I don't see the types and the foreshadows. What's, I just want to do the law. I just want to live my life like making sacrifices. How are these things pointing to something else? I don't quite see it. I don't quite see it. When they see it in the person of Jesus Christ, that veil is lifted. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That old covenant makes even more sense as we are in Christ to look back and appreciate the types, the foreshadows, the things that were pointing to Jesus. And in Matthew 26, Jesus says, this makes it clear as day, this new covenant being Jesus. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. See that when we take communion, we take the, the bread and the wine. The bread is that Jesus came down. The life-giving bread, as we looked at earlier, the bread came down to give life. That's the symbolism of the bread. 
The bread came down to give life. But then that life had to be killed to have our sins washed away. And that's, that's the wine. So the bread, Jesus came down, lived a perfect life that I could never live. The blood, he died in my place. All my sins are nailed to the cross. And so he even talks, hey, this is, this is the seal. This is the proof. This is the proof that I am the covenant. My life and my death, this is the new covenant. This is the promise of God. I am the promise of God. And so we look at that now. How does this compare? So we understand the things that, you know, hey, it's written on stone, uh, dependent upon obedience, all those things are on this side. What's it look like on this side with Jesus being the new covenant? Well, the covenant's written on our hearts. I like 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You have to understand this. Uh, the, the church at Corinth was asking Paul for his resume. What is your pastoral resume, Paul? How do we know that you are something special? We know that you're doing something and people's lives are changing, but could you please just print out a resume and send three copies to the following staff members and it'd be great. And then we'll review that. And Paul's like, you want like letters of recommendation? You want like some sort of like resume for me? You gotta be kidding me. So he said, you want a letter? He said, you're our letter. Written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. Cared for by us. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. He's like, the Holy Spirit came and indwelled you. His spirit is living in your heart. You have been transformed from the inside out, no longer working your way towards heaven or being something good or something better. You have been transformed by receiving Christ as your savior, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You're a new creation in Christ. You want a letter? It's on your heart, man. Look at all the people around you. There's something different. There's something changed. They're now loving people when they're hating on people. Like, that's our letter. So it's written now on the hearts. And those promises, I love this. And this is where we get deeper. We're going to flip the page, if you will, to verse 8. The promises are now unconditional. Hebrews 8.8 8 says, For finding fault with them, that is finding fault with those who are trying to keep the promises because it was unconditional. Finding fault with Israel. Okay, um, he says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them up by the hand to lead them up out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant and I didn't care for them, says the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, hey, you should know the Lord. They're all gonna know me from the least to the greatest of them. I will be merciful to their iniquities. I'll remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. <laughs> Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Notice here these statements. There is nothing that people have to do to receive this promise. God simply says, I will do this. I will put my law in their hearts. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. Do they have to do anything for that to happen? No. Do they have to obey something? Do they have to keep their end? No. I will be their God. I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. God says, it's all on me. I got this. They couldn't do it. I gave them a chance to make it on them. It didn't work. In fact, the moment I went up to the, give it to Moses, they're down there making a golden calf saying, this is what saved us. It's like, they've been blowing it from day one. It doesn't work. So I got to put it on me. I will do this. And I love the contrast. There's going to be a, a beautiful contrast. Some people don't know the story. Um, there's a, a, these five I wills are very beautifully contrasted to another set of I wills in the Bible. I want to point that out to you because you're going to see two different natures, and I think it makes it even more sweeter. And so uh, the book of Isaiah records the fall of Lucifer. Some people don't know. How did the devil become the devil? We know he was an angel. Some people just kind of hear stories. Oh, wasn't he like an angel, like some sort of special angel? How did he ever fall? Whatever happened with that? How did we get a record? Is it just, do we just guess it? No. The book of Isaiah clearly points out what it is that the devil did to get kicked out of heaven. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 15 says this. 
God says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Hmm, God says, no. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, the grave, to the lowest depths of the pit. In fact, God says, I basically created hell. I created hell just for the devil and his followers. I created hell as a place that if you, wanted to, if you want to be separate from me, you got it. You want your own little kingdom to rule and reign in that I have nothing to do with? Here you go. It's called hell. It's created for you. But notice these statements. I will ascend the devil. And again, God knows the heart. Gosh, he knew the heart of the devil. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the, on the mount. I will ascend above the heights. I will be like the most high. He wanted to be God. He had the pride of him to say, I want it. I want to be there. I want the glory. I want, the, I want it all coming from me. Compare that here. God says, I will put my laws into their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God. I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. The will of God is not about, I want, I need, I will do this for them. The enemy there, he's just like, I want it for me, me, my kingdom. I want this, I want this. God says, I love you. I do this for you. It's all about you. I make the promise to you. And so I love that simple contrast. Just take a moment to compare those two, but man, you look at those I wills and they're just, they don't compare. God is so, so good. He loves us so much. And we look here, the promises, we know how they're unconditional, but understand now they're mainly eternal promises. They're spiritual things that he's promising us. He's promising us things like, again, and it goes on, and we look at um, verse 12, I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. So these promises are spiritual. Acts 13 gives us an insight to that. Acts 13 says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So Moses didn't justify you. You're not justified, justified. You stand just as if you've never sinned. You've been forgiven. That's the promise. First John 2 says it like this. And this is the promise that he's promised to us, eternal life. First John 5, 11 and 12 goes on to say that the life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. The gift, the promise is eternal life. And so these promises are just better. The covenant's better. The promise is better. It's not about like, you're going to have a length of days. The rain's going to come for your harvest. I'm going to grow things. God's like, I got eternal life for you. It's so much better in this new covenant. And the new covenant says that, hey, the law couldn't save. The new covenant says very clearly, you are saved by grace and through faith. It's not about performing the works of the law. Not about how many steps can I take on the Sabbath to do this or can I do this? God's like, no, no, no. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says this. But God, who's rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, that free gift, you've been saved. It's free. It's a free gift. It falls in line perfectly, by the way, with unconditionalism. It's just a gift. It's just here. You don't have to do anything to deserve it. You can't earn it. Free, unconditional gift. That's what grace is. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceedingly exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The new covenant does save. The new covenant is, it's a free gift of grace. 
How do you receive that Jesus who's promised to us? The free gift is just, just put your faith in him. I have to climb a mountain. I got to do something. I got to say something. I have to go to church. I got to be baptized. You don't have to do anything. It's by faith you're saved through grace. You can't add from it. You can't take from it. It's a gift. The law can't save. Gift of God can. And I love this. It's available to all. Now you might say, we're going to look at it a little bit. How's it available to all? Because I, I read that the covenant said it's, it's two, it's two in verses like five through eight, eight, sorry, eight through uh, 12. It says, this covenant I'm making is with Judah and Israel. If it's with Judah and Israel, how is it available to all? Can you explain that to me? Absolutely. Romans 10, nine through 13 says this. It says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That's Isaiah being quoted there. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Clarify that for me. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Joel quoting. And so you might think, because sometimes I wonder, well, if we just as New Testament people look back, are we just like robbing? Are we, as, you know, some people want to think of this uh, replacement theology nonsense. They're like, oh, the church is actually Israel. And no, 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 no. Understand this. God has a plan and a purpose for Israel. This covenant is a part of that. Absolutely. But this covenant is in line with absolutely everything else that the Old Testament talks about as well from the Adamic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and those covenants before. And here quoting, it's, it's uh, Isaiah that says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. It's Joel who's quoted chapter two, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those aren't New Testament ideas. We're not looking back at it saying like, hey, I just want to kind of make it for us. How do I make that promise for me? The Old Testament authors said, no, the day is coming when the Jews and the Gentiles will all call on the Messiah to be saved. And anybody... Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The promise is for us. The promise was made to them, absolutely. It is for them. The book of Hebrews was written to those Jews to understand, hey, know that you're not doing something that's not in line with the Old Testament. What you're doing is in absolute alignment with the Old Testament. Jeremiah is the one I'm quoting here in, 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 in um, Hebrews chapter 8. Jeremiah is the one that's being said when we look at it here. Jeremiah, these, these all caps part of it, behold the days are coming, all the way down to verse 11, 12. That's just Jeremiah. This is not a, a New Testament thing. Most of your Bibles will have some sort of note. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 34. He's quoting Jeremiah. He's saying the way to salvation, as testified by the Old Testament prophets, is, whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, they all point to the same thing. They all point to the forgiveness of sins, to the person of Jesus Christ. And know this, it says in verse 11, it says, hey, they're not going to go around teaching everybody his fellow citizen and, and people that are brothers and saying, hey, you should know the Lord. And for all, we, for all will know me, he says. Don't go around teaching everybody know me because you're already going to know me. What does that mean? Again, the Old Testament was a system of to know God, you did things. To know God, I kept the law. I didn't have a personal relationship with God. The priests did their thing. They interacted with God in their special, unique way. I was told if I messed up just to kind of do these motions, wash this way, do this sort of thing. I didn't know God. There was no God. I, I, I had rules and regulations to follow. And he's saying, it's going to come a time when it won't be rules and regulations and say, oh, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this to know him. He says, there's going to come a time when you just will know me. I love this. 1 John 5.20, it says this. And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. The idea of personally knowing God was such a foreign concept then. It was like, yes, there's a God. Yeah, Moses, you go up on the mountain and talk with him. <laughs> I don't know. I'm down here. I'm just going to make my own little stuff. And I don't, know. I don't know what you're doing up there. You come down and tell me. Tell me that I should follow him. Tell me that I should know him. Tell me these things. And now God's saying, no, no, no. I want you in me. And I want me in you. I want my spirit in you, changing you, shaping you. 
conforming you from the inside out. Much different. And again, all for what? So I can be merciful to their iniquities and remember their sins no more. We end on these thoughts. Colossians 2 says this. When you were dead in your trespass, in your, dead, excuse me, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which is hostile to us. And he has taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Psalm 103 says it beautifully like this, and we might all, might all know this. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Those transgressions are nailed in the cross. They're not ours to carry around anymore. The guilt, the shame, the consequence, sin, it's on the cross. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. He removed it as far as the east is from the west. That's the fulfillment, again, right here of these promises in verse 12. When he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. How did the Old Testament disappear? Understand this. Um, I'm just going to give you a quick time frame. The old, the old Covenant, again, the system of priest and temple and sacrifice and law, right? This book of Hebrews is written around 64 A.D., just an A.D. 64, okay, understand that? Um, it was about six years later in 70 A.D. when Titus, the emperor of Rome, came and he raised Jerusalem and the temple. He absolutely destroyed the temple. So again, Jesus was born, give or take, around zero. He lived and died around uh, 32, 33. The book of Hebrews is written around 64. The temple gets completely destroyed and is destroyed to this day in 70 AD. And we say it's the second temple, I'm not going to get into the Solomon's first temple, rebuilt after Babylonian captivity, another day. But understand, the temple as we know it now was destroyed in 70 AD, and it looks today like this. Those are the actual stones in Jerusalem of the temple. When Titus and his army came in, they took the stones, and this is a street that was nearby. They literally just said, we don't even want the stones on them. We throw them on the street. And they piled the stones up on the street. Imagine your house. Imagine every brick and stucco and, 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 and wood collected and thrown on the street. That's exactly what happened. Completely removed, destroyed on the street. And in scale, like, lady there's on, on a smartphone. Like, that's the scale. Like, this is today. It's a tourist attraction. You want to go see the old temple you can see it. It was destroyed. But understand this. It wasn't in 70 AD when the destruction started. The destruction was completed in 70 AD. It became like, yeah, these stones are broken. They're unusable. They're not, they're not, it, uh, something can't be put back together again. Humpty Dumpty's fallen off the wall, not coming back. Understand this. The moment Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn. Mark 15 says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There was no longer a separation between the holy of holies and the holy place. There's no longer a place for the high priest to go in and perform a sacrifice. Jesus had literally in that moment when the veil was torn said, it's done. There's nothing else for a priest to do. Where are you going to take the blood? There's nowhere to go. The, the glory of God's been removed from that ark. It's gone. There's nothing going on anymore. Titus simply finalized it because man and his nature of doing works and performing the law was like, let's stitch that puppy back up. I want to put the veil back together. We can do this, guys. And God's like, no, I got to just rubble it completely. And he did so and he allowed it to happen in 70 AD. But understand, the moment Jesus died, that covenant was done. It was over. It was finished. That's what he's talking about. He said, it's finished. The Mosaic covenant, the law, the sacrifice, the temple, the priesthood, that's all finished. It's all fulfilled in me. So if you understand that, the old covenant, it's obsolete. It was obsolete the moment Jesus died on the cross. And the better covenant is the person of Jesus Christ. Then you, you get 
Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 10 says this. By this will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. He's talking about in the Old Covenant, which can never take away sins. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, bring us back to verse 1, sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished. You can take a seat when it's finished. He's, it's finished. Let's pray. Oh, God. Father, help us to learn to rejoice in the new covenant. I don't always know my heart and, and everybody's hearts when we take communion and reminded of this. And he says, this is the bread. This is the cup. Take these in remembrance of me. Remember the covenant, the promise that I'm making with you, God says. The promise of eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for that. The promise of a hope and a peace and a joy and a purpose. God, you are good and you are faithful. And I thank you that our faith, our hope can be in you, the promise-making and promise-keeping God. And so, Lord, help us. Continue, Father, to intercede on us when we fall astray. Continue to advocate us when we're being accused. Continue to prepare and put our hope in that preparation of that heavenly place that you've got prepared for us. And so, Lord, we just, we cling to you. We need you. And Father, we just thank you for this night and thanks for bringing your word alive in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.